we saw this morning how not to give an evangelistic message. And what I want to share with you this evening is how to give an evangelistic message. And I am going to do my best to keep it simple, to keep it clean, if you would. I have been studying the gospel for 32 years. I absolutely love it. I cannot get enough of it. The gospel, it means good news. Warren Wiersbe said it's only good news if it gets there in time. And he also said, you're a Christian because somebody shared with you the good news. Now it's your turn to return the favor and to pay it forward. I love it. Sam Storms, he said, before a single star burst into being, before our own sun emitted its first flood of light and energy, before any galaxies were formed from absolute nothingness, there Christ was. The eternal one, without beginning and blemish, the living one, without sin and guile the self-existent one who is above and beyond the whole course of time, the self-sufficient one who through the incarnation humbled himself as a man in order for mankind to truly know him. Of all the questions that you must master before you pass from time on into eternity, before you pass from this planet, and go and stand before your creator is, am I going to go to heaven when I die? And if so, why? Why am I going to go to heaven? Or why do they get to go to heaven? Why am I not counted in that number? I want to encourage you and challenge you to listen very carefully and to squeeze those four inches of sponge between your ears. Because what I have to share, this message is the most important message of all seven of my messages that you will hear. There is nowhere I would rather be. There's no one I'd rather be talking to. This is it. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us. Death can come knocking tonight. So thank you for joining me here today. and. Let us open in prayer, and I want to open up two points. Really, it is the law, and it is the gospel, and I'll explain both as I do so, but let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, the Christ, born of a virgin who lived a perfect life, and he died a cruel death. May we gaze upon him and gaze upon you and your holiness. May we get a clearer glimpse of who you are in light of who we are. Help us to draw near to you now. We sanctify this area in the name of Jesus Christ, and we ask by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us. And for those who chose not to stay, for whatever reason, God, I pray that you would bless them and their families richly. For this time is truly all about you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
when I'm out on the streets and I want to evangelize, ask the question to the people. If you were to die tonight and you stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And the number one answer I get in response to that question is because I'm a good person. And undoubtedly, they probably are a good person to other people that are not as good as him. In the Bible, in fact, it says in Proverbs 20, verse 6, that every person thinks they are a good person. But the law of God, the Ten Commandments, takes care of that. It changes it, and it leaves the whole world guilty before the judgment seat of a holy God. Listen to this text in Romans 3, verses 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world, not just the Jews, may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the Ten Commandments stop people from justifying themselves and saying that there are plenty of people worse than them. The law of God cannot help us before God. It can't help us. It leaves us helpless. It gives us no hope. It leaves us hopeless. That is the point of the commandments, though it's a pretty good idea not to steal from each other. It's a good idea not to lie or to covet or to commit adultery. Those are good rules, good laws. But those weren't the purpose of the commandments. The purpose of the commandments are singular. And we see that inside of our text in just a moment. And I'll get to that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. But listen to this quote first off from C.H. Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon, he was the prince of preachers. I'm enamored with his work. A couple months ago, I had a chance to visit his church. Um, he's long gone, obviously, but the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in England. And I had a chance to go into the sanctuary with my son. But listen to these words of his. What will you do when the law of God comes in terror? When the trumpet of the archangel shall tear you from your grave? When the eyes of God shall burn their way into your guilty soul? When the great books shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished? Can you stand against an angry law in that day? That's a little bit different than God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's a little bit different, wouldn't you say? So if you're taking notes, I've divided this into two points. Number one, the law, and that's going to make sense in just a moment. And then the gospel. But the question is raised up, well, why not just the gospel? I thought Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Yes, and the law is not part of the gospel. I do not have a love affair with the law, but I realize and recognize the place of the law, and I think you will as well. Let me ask you this. Could I ever convince you to take medicine from a complete stranger that you meet out on the street who you've never met, you're convinced that you're sick or you're dying, would you take medicine from someone as you pass them on the street? Would you ever take that? No, I hope not. Of course not. 
Well, the gospel is like that. When we go into the highways, the byways, and the gutterways, and we try to give them the gospel, the gospel is not going to make sense. We see these football games and these signs that are posted, Jesus saves. From what? What do you mean? Jesus loves you. Great. He loves me just the way I am. I don't need to change. There is a disconnect. If, on the other hand, if I were to tell you that I'm a doctor and you're sitting inside my hospital room and I show you 10 clear warning signs that you're dying of a horrific disease, I take the blood and I show you the blood work. I do x-rays, I do an MRI, and then I convince you that you're dying of a horrific disease. How much time do I need to spend with you to convince you to take the medicine, the cure? Not very long at all, right? That is the point and the purpose of the law. Martin Luther said, preach 90% law, 10% grace. Wait a minute, why would he say that? It'll make sense in just a moment. So Galatians 3, verse 24. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law doesn't justify us. It just leaves us damned before a holy and perfect creator. Now, what is a schoolmaster? If the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor, what does that mean? Well, a schoolmaster back in the first century would be someone that would raise kids, kind of like a nanny, if you would, would take the kids to school. If the kids were to leave home, the schoolmaster would be right there. The schoolmaster in the rising up and in the sitting down would teach them the ways of Yahweh. The law of God can drive a man to the cross, but can take him no further. Because we are not saved in keeping the law. We're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no man shall boast. So allow me, if you would, to bring the Ten Commandments before you in all of their simplicity. The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And we see that reiterated in the New Testament. Have you kept that one? It's a pretty powerful one. Has God always been first in all of your affections and decisions? You know, the Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or God is grace, grace, grace. Though 1 John 4, 6 says that God is love, but it doesn't say he's love, love, love. It says he is holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. 1 Timothy 6, 16. He alone has immortality, and he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Now, why shall we have no other gods? Because there is no God like our God. He has no competitors. He does not stand in a long line of people that compete to do the same thing. Confucius and Buddha, they're at the end of the line. They're not even in the same line, for he alone dwells in unapproachable light. Great is our Lord and 
might and power, and his understanding is infinite. His thoughts are not your thoughts, nor his ways your He is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. There's nothing too difficult for him. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. You take the wings of the heavens and you go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Behold, he is there. Every step we take, we're taking a step closer to God. And it doesn't matter what direction you head because he is omnipresent. He knows every thought you are thinking. He knows your every fear and your every desire. He knows the things that you would do if you knew you could get away with it. But you can't get away with it. Because every idle word a man speaks, he'll have to give an account on the day of judgment. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. In Psalm 9, verse 8, he will judge the world in righteousness, and he will execute judgment for the people with equity. So I ask you, have you always put God first? Is he first in your affections? Does he always have your attention? Or are you living your life the way you want to live it? The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Why? I think Isaiah 45, 5 is a good verse. I am the Lord, and there is no other, and there is no God besides me. And what we do is we say, well, listen, I would never make a carved image. That's kind of silly. I would never make a statue. I would never bow down to something that is wooden, something that has eyes but can't see and ears that cannot hear. But we in California, we can make an idol out of anything, out of power, out of prestige, out of money. We take great pride perhaps in the vehicle that I drive or the job that I have. You could say even perhaps, you know what? My God would never create hell. And if you were to think that, I would agree with you. Your God would never create hell. Your God, a figment of your imagination, doesn't exist. Because the God of the Bible has created hell. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. How about the third commandment? It says you should not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you've ever texted OMG or you stubbed your toe and you said, Jesus, if you did not give proper honor and value to the one who created you, then you're guilty of blasphemy. Even texting OMG, you think, well, I don't think anything of it. That's exactly right. You're not thinking anything of it. You're bringing the holy name of your creator down to the same as a four-letter filth word to express disgust. And the Bible says in Psalm 139, verse 20, his enemies take his name in vain. And that's very serious. We'll skip the fourth commandment for now, but the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Honor your mom and your dad, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Exodus 21, 17. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. You see, your parents are so important to you that God has said, I'm going to have them make the decisions that you cannot make. You are to honor them. And notice the Bible does not say, honor your mom and dad unless your dad is in prison and your mom deals drugs. 
It doesn't say that. It says, honor your mom and your dad so that it's well with you all the days of your life. I broke that commandment in my teenage years alone. So the sixth commandment says you shall not murder. But Matthew 5.22 equates anger with murder. So not only does God see the things that we do, but the things we think about when we think nobody is around. 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see what the commandments are doing? They're a little uncomfortable, right? I hope they're a lot more uncomfortable than just that. But the point and the purpose, remember, it's to drive you to Christ so that you cry out and you say, well, what must I do to be saved? And you're going to find out that there is nothing you can do to be saved. The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 27, I say to you, or 28, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 talks about no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. Serious things. When we think, hey, nobody knows what I'm doing. I'm going to be on my device. I'm kind of living a secret life. I'm perhaps doing something I shouldn't do. Listen, we cannot be entertained by the things for which Christ died. How about this? Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Hebrews 13, 4. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Remember, God not only sees the things that you do, but the things you think about. This is why the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is it fearful? Because everything I ever do is going to be made manifest on that great white throne judgment day when the judge of the universe is going to hold me accountable for everything I've ever done. Leviticus 18.22 says homosexuality is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says that they shall be put to death. In 1 Corinthians 6.10, it says, no homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God. And I don't say that with, uh, with joy in my heart. In the same way, if you're fornicating, you don't have to be a homosexual. If you're fornicating, if you're living outside of the design that God has created you for, these are the words of God. And we have to give an account before God. We can try to walk away and say this doesn't exist, or my God would never judge these things. But it's still what the Bible says. And I'm your best friend because I'm going to tell you the truth. The Eighth Commandment says you shall not steal. 1 Corinthians 6.10, no thief will inherit the kingdom of God. The Ninth Commandment says you shall not lie. Have you always told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 12, 22. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape, Proverbs 19, verse 5. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, 
nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to the light. And then finally, Revelation 21.8, all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Are you content with what God has given you? There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I would like to make things a little bit better. But when it enters into a place of lusting after, I must have that car. I must have that thing. I must have that person. It's entered into a place that is unholy, not just imperfect. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what would a profit a man if he gains the whole world? And then he forfeits his soul. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Now do you feel that weight? I mean, if we're honest, if we're not going to try to buck against it, all have sinned. We've all sinned, and if you broke only one commandment, it's as if you've broken all of the commandments. And it actually goes a whole lot worse than that. Jonathan Edwards, he said, God sees nothing in man to turn his heart, but he sees plenty in man to turn his stomach. Joseph Aline, he said, every unconverted man would kill God all over again if he could just get to him. John MacArthur says the Bible is the most offensive book ever written because it damns the whole human race and no one escapes. Corruption runs in our blood, Matthew Henry said. So there's the law. You feel the condemnation. But I thought we're not supposed to condemn. You're right. That's John chapter 3, verse 17. Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. Why not? because they were condemned already. What the law of God just did is it demonstrated that we're condemned. That's all it did. It's like holding up a mirror and showing you who you are in truth. That's it. But now you don't take the mirror off the wall and start rubbing the dirt. Remember, the commandments, they drive you to the cross, but they can't take you any further. But we have to come clean. And oftentimes when I'm out on the street, when I'm talking to people, if they're not concerned, as I've gone through the commandments, I don't give them the gospel. Because the purpose and the point of the law of God is to show them that they are helpless and hopeless. And if left to themselves, they're heading down this spiral towards hell. And I let that sit for just a season. And I trust that God will send somebody else after me to water the seed that is planted. Because listen, he who plants is nothing. And he who waters is nothing. But Christ, Christ is everything. So that all glory and all honor will go to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So point one was the law. Here's point two. And I'm so excited to share it with you. It is the gospel. John Stott said, you cannot properly preach the gospel if you do not properly preach Christ. He's not Michael the archangel. He's not a prophet. He's not just a messenger like the Baha'i faith teaches. No, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He's had no predecessor, 
He'll have no successor. You cannot impeach him. He will never resign. He does not stand in a long line with other people like Confucius or Buddha or Joseph Smith or Muhammad. He is altogether separate, altogether lovely. He is the express image of the Father, and he upholds all things together by the word of his power. For in him we live and move and we have our being. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the image of the invisible God. For there is one God between man and men, God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.14 says that he is the Savior of the world. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. And according to Exodus 3.14, he is the great I Am. He is altogether different than what you imagine him to be. There are no two words when brought together will express a greater meaning than I am. He's not fickle. He's not manipulated. He's not becoming something that he's not. He simply is. From times past all the way into eternity, he is the one to whom we will bow down and give homage to. Whether you are a believer in Christ or a non-Christian thinking these things through, or a hardened skeptic who refuses to believe these words, because the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every person will bring glory to God. You think, I will never bow. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. We'll see. I will never say I told you so with tears in my eyes. If I see it on that day, the great white throne judgment, and the light turns on. But you will be held accountable. So what is this good news? Because the Bible says, nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby which man must be saved. You see, we have broken God's law. The wrath of the Father abides upon us, and there's no escape. Well, there is one way of escape. One way to escape the wrath of the Father is by drawing near the Father. It's a paradox. We escape the wrath of God by running towards the grace of God. The grace of God that is found in Christ alone. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. We escape his wrath by running towards his grace, by crying out to God to have mercy on us. Thomas Watson said, every time we take a breath, we are sucking in the mercy of God with no guarantee of another breath. And the thing that separates Christianity from every other worldview is the person of Jesus and this five-letter word called grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said, you are at the closest moment of receiving God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness when you begin to realize that you cannot do anything right. See, as I go through the commandments, you begin to think to yourself, I can't escape these commandments. I mean, I love my sin. 
I love my fornication, my adultery. There's no way around lying. It's part of what I do as a job, perhaps. Right. You see, God is not commanding you to clean your life up. He's not inviting you to clean your life up. He's commanding you to lay your life down. There's a difference. You see, God doesn't see anything lovely in you to save you, but because God is love, he loves to save people. Because there's nothing you can do. Where, how do you draw near to God who the mountains melt like wax and turn into little hills? We do it by faith. We're saved by faith. Sola fide, faith alone. Grace alone, sola gratia. Sam Storm says, God does not give his grace by calculated measure. Meaning, you know what? I've known, I know what you've done. You need this much grace. We all know what you've done. You need this much. And you hiding over here in the shadows, you need a lot more. It says, no, God does not give his grace by calculated measure. You come underneath the spout where God's grace and mercy and forgiveness come pouring out. Whosoever will, let him come. The invitation goes out. It's a declaration that you must repent. We are saved by grace alone. Ephesians 1.7, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And because of God's grace, you never need to fear that God is going to grab a hold of your past failings, or your present mishaps, and shove them in your face and remind you of what a blow it you are. Too much of a gentleman. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, the Bible clearly teaches that we're saved by grace alone. There's nothing you could do to earn the favor of God. If you were to come up to me and hand me a brand new car, and I reach into my wallet and I give you 10 bucks for it, it's no longer a gift. I don't serve God to gain his acceptance, but because of what Christ did on that Roman gibbet 2,000 years ago, I serve him joyfully and willingly, not always faithfully, but he's faithful even when I'm faithless because it's not about me, it's about him. The Bible says, you must repent. In fact, it says, unless you repent, you will perish. It's the Greek word mentanoia, and it means to change your mind. You must agree with God that his way is right, that there's no way to get to the Father than through Jesus Christ. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. You need a right standing before God. So, Here's the picture. God has made God your substitute. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid a debt he did not owe because you and I owed a debt we could never, ever pay. We escaped God by running towards God. And God does not dismiss his wrath against sinners by the wave of a magic wand. He can't just say, you're forgiven, you're not forgiven. No, anybody that comes to him is forgiven. It's a free gift. 
It's a free gift to you because it cost him everything that he has. The most precious thing we have is the blood inside of us. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't hide your sins. He removes your sins. And I like what Corey Ten Boom said. God grabs a hold of our sins and he throws it into the depths of the ocean and he posts his sign, no fishing allowed. God's not going to remind you of your sins. And when he died, it was before you even had a sin. So your past, present, and future sins, all done away with. Now, we still mess up. We still kind of break that fellowship from time to time when we call the shots inside of our life. And fellowship and harmony, perhaps there's a, a chasm between us. And that's why the Bible says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess. He sees it anyways, though. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They sinned. God comes into the garden. Adam, where are you? It's not because Adam, God didn't know where Adam was at. It's because Adam didn't know where Adam was at. Adam, look where you're at. Look what your dastardly deed has done. Adam, come to me. Come to my voice. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Christ made it clear that through his substitutionary death, he demonstrated his hatred for sin, yet his love for humanity. And through his obedient life and submissive death, he provided a way for people to be declared righteous in God's sight. You see, you can never be found good, but you can be found forgiven. Be found forgiven and cleansed and washed of all unrighteousness. Romans 5.8. Do we have it memorized yet? God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So therefore, Jesus' righteousness, it can be credited to anybody that comes to him in faith and says, I'm a blow it, and you're willing and ready to forgive me and to cleanse me? You're getting the short end of the stick. Yeah, come to me. Count the cost. Trials, tribulation, persecution, temptation, and sufferings. And heaven. And fellowship with God who knows how to create sunsets and seafood. I mean, come to him. Draw near to him. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come behold. Come and taste him who tasted the bitter wrath of the Father's cup so that you can taste and see that he is good. He is a good, good Father. Draw near to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, Scripture says. Draw near to him. Don't be unstable, unfaithful in all your ways. Don't allow your pride to hold you back. And the reason I know that God will forgive you of your sins is because three days after Jesus died, he rose again from the grave. 
And there is no other true story where the hero dies for the villain. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And then he said, do you believe this? And I want to ask you, do you believe this? Draw near to him. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other world religions. And through the resurrection, Christ demonstrated that he does not stand in a line of peers with Abraham, Buddha, Muhammad, or Confucius. He is utterly unique. He has the power not only to lay down his life, but to take it up again. You see, Christianity begins where all the other religions stop. They stop with death. Christianity, it starts with the resurrection. You go to Israel today, there's an empty tomb. Because he rose again from the dead. He defeated the grave, and he has ascended to the Father, and he sits at the right hand of God in majesty, ruling and reigning with his crown of thorns, with a scepter in his hands, and the only scars in heaven will be the scars of the Messiah to remind us continually that he paid the ultimate debt. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, you, you don't know what I've done. You're right. But it doesn't matter. I don't care who made your bed this morning. I don't care what you meditated upon last night or what you're thinking about during the service. Your Redeemer is bigger than your past. He's bigger. Your sin is no match for the King of Kings. It's not. Christ had me drive five and a half hours up from Southern California to tell you that you're wrong if you're thinking that you cannot be forgiven. You're not bigger than God. You cannot outrun God. He's here inside this room now. So where do we go from here? What do we do? The Bible says you must be born again. Remember, J.C. Ryle said unless a man is born again, he's going to wish one day he was never born at all. I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to have you meet with me. What you need to do is you need to meet with God. He's big enough to meet with you. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to meet with him. He's sitting next to you. He engulfs all around you. He's looking and staring right into your heart. He's not blinking. If you were to blink, he would take his eyes off of you. And he commands and he demands a response in the affirmative to the things that I've said. Cry out to God to have mercy on you, to forgive you, and to cleanse you. And you have his promise that he will because he knows not how to lie. He is not like you or me. Amen? Amen. The Bible says with the mouth, confession is made. So confess your sins before God. As I'm going through the commandments, things that are just kind of pricking you right there, confess those. He sees those. You don't need to repeat a prayer after me. We're not going to see a prayer found inside the Bible. In Psalm 51, David said, 
Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Meet with God. Cry out to God to have mercy on you. And then tell your children if you've done that. Or your, tell your parents if you want to do that. But that's the beauty of this. It's about you and your relationship with God and no one else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the dear people that are here today that are within earshot of this message or perhaps those who might hear it in the future. God, have mercy. I'm reminded of Judas who died thirsty next to the well of salvation. There's no greater tragedy than to be almost saved because to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. I pray that you would help the dear people here to repent, to confess, to be willing to forsake, to run from your wrath by running towards your grace found in Christ alone. We thank you for your scripture alone that leads us into all truth. May you receive the glory alone due to your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.